1: The Trump administration brokers a massive peace deal in the Middle East. Joe Biden calls for a national mask mandate and President Trump opens a can of worms on mail-in ballots. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today at expressvpn.com slash Ben. So y'all remember that time when Barack Obama won a Nobel Peace Prize for existing? Like literally for breathing. He won the presidency of the United States in late 2008, and by 2009, he was being handed the Nobel Peace Prize for literally being a breathing human being. That was his only claim to fame. That was the only reason he was given the Nobel Peace Prize. Even when he accepted it, he was like, I'm not sure why I'm here. what did I do again? Well, I mean, I am great. I am kind of a messianic figure, but aside from that, I have no idea what I'm doing here. It was very, very weird. Well, what would you say if there was a president who brokered a peace deal between Israel and one of its heretofore Arab nation enemies, and that peace deal provided the basis for many other Arab nations to start making peace deals for normalization of relations with Israel. Wouldn't that be considered like a big win, like a Nobel Prize winning sort of thing? I mean, Jimmy Carter won a Nobel Prize based on brokering a peace deal between Egypt and Israel. Bill Clinton was, was nominated for a Nobel Prize. It was Yitzhak Rabin and Arafat who won the Nobel Prize, bizarrely, for the Oslo Peace Accords, which turned out to be a complete disaster area. Every single American president tries to make some sort of deal in the Middle East. But only Trump has been able to make a successful deal in the Middle East for the first time since like 1994 when Jordan normalized relations with Israel. So it has been full on almost three decades since there was a solid peace deal in the Middle East and President Trump got it done. He got it done because all of the interests aligned. Now, to be completely fair, the reason the interests align is because of President Obama but because President Obama was a garbage president who's terrible in the Middle East. Because Obama decided that he was going to forward the aspirations of the Iranian mullahs, try to make them a regional power, he was going to legitimize their nuclear program over time. He was going to try to open up their economy. He was going to look the other way on their terrorism and their attempts to spread their power via regime changes all over the Middle East. Because he did that, a coalition of forces formed against the Iranian rising power, and that included Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, the UAE, and yes, Israel. It turns out, that the common interest of all of those countries was in not seeing the Iranians rise to regional power. And so the UAE looked at Israel and Israel looked at the UAE and they said, OK, well, we're on the same page. Not only that, the UAE and Egypt and Jordan and Saudi Arabia, all the countries in the region looked at the Palestinian government, which has allied itself with Iran and has for decades pursued terrorism in conjunction with the Iranian regime. They looked at Hamas, which is funded by Iran. They looked at Hezbollah, which is funded by Iran. They looked at Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is funded by Iran. And they said, "Um, we don't want a state run by Iran, another state in the Middle East run by Iran that threatens a country that is helping us fight Iran. And so they made clear what has always been true, but which the the stupid conventional wisdom on the Middle East suggested was false, which is that the center of gravity in the Middle East was never the Israel-Arab conflict. See, there's been this pervasive, idiotic notion that if you just solve all of the problems between Israel and its enemies, then peace blossoms across the Middle East. All of the sectarian violence that, by the way, has plagued the Middle East in far larger numbers all over the Middle East than between Israel and its neighbors, all of that would simply go away. Like all of the problems between Turkey and Iraq would simply disappear. Between Turkey and the Kurds, that would disappear. All of the problems between Syria and Iran would simply go away. All of the problems between Jordan and Palestinian Liberation organization, all of that would simply alleviate all the problems between Iraq and Kuwait. Everything would just go away if you just focused in on the Jews. Right? This was the moral equivalent of everybody saying that white woke liberals in the United States, if they can only get things together, they'll heal all the problems in the United States. Like, no, nope, that is n- none of that's real. Okay, None of that's real. The notion That if you force a peace on Israel, that that was somehow going to alleviate all the tensions in the Middle East and somehow all the sectarian violence was going to go away was always a chimera. It was always an act of Western arrogance. It was always stupid. And it's why the conventional wisdom had suggested for years that if the United States moved its embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv, the non-capital of Israel, to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, then war would break out everywhere. And then Trump looked at it. He said, no, that's not real. He did it. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. Because it turns out that there are many interests in the Middle East, and very few of them have to do with Israel. It turns out there are economic interests in the Middle East, something the Trump administration recognized. It turns out there are geopolitical interests in the Middle East that, that simply trump the existence of Israel, which is not going away. And it turns out that the foundation for any peace in the Middle East is a recognition of reality, that the durable peace, that the durable peace in, in, um, in the Middle East has to come with recognition of realities on the ground. Recognition like Israel is not going away. Not only is Israel not going away, the areas that Israel controls that have largely Jewish populations are not going to be ceded to the Palestinian Authority. Recognition of the the reality, the baseline reality, that the Palestinian Authority is in fact a quasi-terror group that is enthralled to terror groups, that it is a dictatorship, a non-democratic dictatorship, that the transformation of that terror dictatorship into a state in control of weaponry and its own borders would be a threat not only to Israel, but to surrounding countries like Jordan and yes, like Lebanon and yes, like Egypt, right? That those are the baseline realities on the ground. The Trump administration recognized those baseline realities on the ground and Arab nations now facing those looming realities because Iran was rising and Iran was continuing to fund the Palestinians and the problems in Syria and the problems in Lebanon and the problems in Iraq. The rest of the Middle East looked around. They said, "Okay, I guess we better just recognize reality here. And the reality is it's better to be friends with Israel than enemies with Israel. That's all that happened here. Now, the media are trying to spin the peace deal as though Barack Obama created it or that this was all about pressure on Israel because they have to keep fitting a deal that completely goes against the entire grain of what they've been suggesting for years. Right. That only a left wing conciliatory, submissive Israeli government was going to make peace. They, they have to keep pushing that line. And so Thomas Friedman in The New York Times has a bizarre piece today where he argues that Bibi Netanyahu was somehow pushed into a peace deal with the UAE, which is just pure absurdity. Thomas so, uh, Thomas Friedman has his head so far up his butt, it is coming out his face again. He's been wrong on everything to do with the Middle East. So has everybody in the Obama administration. They've been wrong on everything. Everything. We'll get to that in just a moment. They're trying to claim credit for a deal that they themselves only made possible because they got the Middle East completely wrong. Meanwhile, depriving the Trump administration of credit for the deal when it was the Trump administration that did the the deal. And shout out here to the assistant to Jared Kushner, Avi Berkowitz. I know Avi, Avi was very, very instrumental in these talks. Really, Avi did hard work to make this happen. It is a breakthrough peace agreement. Everybody acknowledges it is a breakthrough peace agreement and it will be the basis going forward for many more peace agreements in the Middle East as people recognize that basing peace on the complete fiction that Israel is going to disappear, or that Israel making territorial concessions is what causes peace in the first place, that that entire model is broken. That peace for peace is the actual model here. Not land for peace, not Israel giving up its own safety and security, but peace for peace. Namely, Israel says, we're going to leave you alone, and everybody else says, we're going to leave you alone to Israel. And then they normalize economic relations, which, by the way, has always been the basis for every durable peace. It's always been peace for peace. It has never been land for peace. Land for peace is called blackmail. Peace for peace is simply acknowledging that the other person exists. And that has always been the predicate for anything that remotely approaches a durable peace. So good for the Trump administration. We're going to get into more details here because this really is a major thing. And the media are going to play it up for a moment, and then they're going to downplay it and pretend it was Obama, which is insane. That's insane. Okay, To, to pretend that Barack Obama somehow facilitated this peace deal through pressure on Israel, like five years ago, and and hatred of Bibi Netanyahu, pure hatred of, of Bibi Netanyahu, it's totally crazy. I mean, it's nuts. We'll get to that in just one second. First, let's talk about the fact that you are paying too much for your cell phone bill. So you can't afford to be paying too much for your cell phone bill right now. You can't afford to be paying too much for anything right now. So why would you be spending tons of money on unlimited data that you're not even using? Right now, who's your wireless providers? At AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile. What if I told you that Pure Talk USA... And uses the exact same network as one of those carriers, same towers, same coverage, same quality, but literally costs you half. How do they make it so affordable? Well, no retail stores, no low, so low overhead. You're not funding their billion-dollar ad campaigns, and you're only paying for the data you need, which means no contract, no excessive fees. You'll enjoy unlimited talk, text, and two gigs of data, all for just twenty bucks a month. The average person using PureTalk USA is saving four hundred bucks a year on their wireless bill, which is a lot of money. Grab your mobile fo- mobile phone, dial pounds at two fifty. And say, Ben Shapiro, when you do, you get 250 bucks off any iPhone. Wow. Including the brand new iPhone SE. So you get a discount on an iPhone SE of 250 bucks when you go dial pound 250 and say, Ben Shapiro. Again, that is pound 250. Say, keyword Ben Shapiro, pound 250. Say, keyword Ben Shapiro to get that special deal from Pure Talk USA. Cut your cell phone bill and you get a discount on any iPhone, including the brand new iPhone SE. Again, pound 250. Say, keyword Ben Shapiro to get started. Okay, so the New York Times reports this. Israel and the United Arab Emirates reached a landmark accord sealed by President Trump on Thursday that could presage a broader realignment in the region as the two agree to full normalization of relations in exchange for Israel suspending annexation of occupied West Bank territory. Okay, so let's be clear right here. Bibi Netanyahu, the Israeli government, under the Trump peace plan, there was a an opening for the Israeli government to basically declare that all Israeli territory, meaning territories that that were largely populated by Jews, like Efrat, like areas outside Green Line. Israel Green Line is the line that was established pre-1967. In 1967, Israel wins the Six-Day War and Israel conquers the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, the so-called West Bank of the Jordan River. That's what it was called by Jordan. It's actually Judea and Samaria historically. They conquered the Gaza Strip and all of that. Okay, and the the basic idea is that there are a bunch of Jewish population centers that are across the so-called Green Line, right? Including East Jerusalem, all the historic sites, Jerusalem, by the way, will never be divided. Israel will never divide Jerusalem, nor should they. Because Jerusalem, when it was controlled by Jordan, was closed to people of a variety of different religions, including the Jews. With that said, there are a bunch of huge population senators. Efrat is one that comes to mind, but there are many, many others. And Israel was thinking about simply annexing those areas and saying those belong to Israel for all time. It wouldn't have made a big legal difference, honestly, because other nations that didn't want to recognize it just would not have. Nor would it have taken off the table any of those areas as, quote-unquote, land swaps in future deals. So it would have been kind of a declaration only. It wouldn't have meant a whole hell of a lot. It's not like declaring the Golan Heights sovereign Israeli territory because that is in opposition to, for example, a Syrian claim on the Golan Heights. Israel doing that and being recognized by the United States was pretty important. It was unclear whether if Israel, quote-unquote, annexed the territory— which, again, is not going to fundamentally change things on the ground, whether that gets recognized by anybody, including the United States. Okay, bottom line is that Israel traded a pledge not to annex, which is basically a nothing. They, they basically said to the UAE, it was it's a fig leaf. Okay, that's the reality. Israel granted a fig leaf to the UAE. The UAE wanted to normalize relations with Israel. They said, we need something in return to make it look like we give a crap about the Palestinian Authority, which we actually kind of don't. And Israel said, okay, well, we just won't formally annex all this territory we know is going to end up in Israeli hands under any peace deal in the future anyway. And the UAE was like, good, done. Okay, Because in reality, what this deal really is about is a mutual defense alliance against Iran. That's really what the deal is about. In a surprise announcement at the White House after a three-way phone call with Israeli and Emirati leaders, Mr. Trump said the deal would lead to greater cooperation on investment, tourism, security, technology, energy and other areas while the two countries moved to allow regular direct passenger flights, open embassies and trade ambassadors for the very first time. This has been a long time in the making. Now, the the political media, the idiots like Thomas Friedman will suggest it was just it was a window that opened and the UAE and the Israelis took advantage of nonsense, nonsense. They've been in negotiations on this thing for a very, very long time. The UAE and Israel were warming in relations for at least the last several years, and that was specifically due to the backlash to the Iranian regime that was created by Barack Obama being a full-on cow tower to the Iranian mullahs. If fulfilled, the pact would make the Emirates only the third Arab country to have normal diplomatic relations with Israel, along with Egypt, which signed a peace treaty in 1979, and Jordan, which signed a treaty in 1994. President Trump announced the deal yesterday. Here is what President Trump had to say.
0: This is a truly historic moment, not since the Israel-Jordan peace treaty was signed more than 25 years ago. Has so much progress been made towards peace in the Middle East by uniting two of America's closest and most capable partners in the region? Something which said could not be done. This deal is a significant step towards building a more peaceful, secure and prosperous Middle East.
1: By the way, it it is also apparent that Oman and Bahrain are going to follow UAE in normalizing Israeli ties, and Saudi Arabia cannot be far behind. So this means a complete opening of the Middle East in many, many ways. It is a very, very good day for peace in the Middle East. Now, that is not stopping people who hate peace from being very, very angry about this. Of course, the Palestinians have decided they are going to withdraw their embassy from the UAE, to which the UAE is like, what do we care? You guys are supported by Iran. Good luck to you. Enjoy yourselves. Ahmad Majdalani, A member of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization's Executive Committee, remember, that's a terrorist group, said in an interview shortly before the Palestinian ambassador to the Emirates was recalled in protest, this agreement is a total departure from the Arab consensus. The Palestinian people have not authorized anyone to make concessions to Israel in exchange for anything, (laughs) to which the UAE says, well, good news, we don't give a crap because we're not the Palestinian government. We are the government of the UAE, to which the Egyptians say, right, and we have to secure our border against Palestinian terrorism. To which Jordan is like, um, yeah, so and Saudis are like, um, why would we give a crap? You guys are taking money from the Iranians to pursue terrorism. Israel and the Emirates have long maintained a thinly veiled secret relationship over mutual interests. The idea of formalizing it has come up several times in the past year. The two sides essentially took it into the open after six weeks of indirect talks through Jared Kushner. Here was Jared Kushner, the much maligned Jared Kushner, ripped up and down as a dolt. How could he do anything in the Middle East? The stupid Trump peace plan. Jared Kushner doesn't know anything. We need experts like Susan Rice and the Barack Obama anti-Israel super team to go in there and cram down a deal on Israel. Here is Jared Kushner announcing the deal yesterday, smarter than any of these dolts. Here was Kushner yesterday. The president takes untraditional approaches, he does things in different ways, uh, but he uses common sense and he tries to unite people by focusing on common interests as opposed to allowing them to focus on their common grievances. And what happened was here is we were able to
0: achieve results that others were not able to achieve, and this will advance the region and this will advance the whole world. I would like to say to the people of the region, uh, Muslims, Jews, Christians, that this does give hope that the problems of the past do not condemn you to a future with conflict.
1: A hundred percent. This is exactly right. Why? Because the deal, again, was predicated on the notion that the United States was going to back Israel's claims to defend itself, that Israel is not going away, that hopes that Israel will go away using the Palestinians as, as a as in a, a sort of tip of the spear in destroying Israel, that those are foolhardy hopes, they're dumb, and that Economic relations provide a better way out for many nations in the Middle East than simple continuation of religious warfare. So this is what happens when you take a proper relationship to the Middle East. This is what happens when you take a non-anti-Israel view toward the Middle East. Peace breaks out when you say that Israel will continue to remain and will never go away and that Israel has a right to defend itself. When you don't undercut Israel, peace becomes more possible, not the opposite. The view of the left has always been, if you undercut Israel, then the Arabs will be more likely to make peace. That is such a lie. It is such a lie. When you undercut Israel, what that leads to is the belief that simply taking an intransigent line against Israel will lead to more concessions by Israel. By the way, that's a rational response by Arab states. That'd be a rational response by the Palestinian leadership. The more that America forces Israel to make concessions, and the more intransigence the Palestinians display, which leads the left to make more concessions, why would you ever make a peace deal? Ever? Instead, you will simply continue to pursue terrorism by saying no, peace for peace, not land for peace. It's not up to Israel to make concessions. It's up to you to recognize that Israel is not going away. And then later you can work out all of the territorial issues that you got on the table. But the reality is you first have to normalize relations. You first have to recognize realities on the ground. Reality is a good basis for a peace deal. Fantasy garbage pushed by the Obama administration is actually a bad basis for a peace deal. And you can tell that it's a good deal based on who opposes it. We'll get to who opposes the deal in just one second, by the way. Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, said this is a historic evening today. A new era begins in the relations of the state of Israel with the Arab world. He tweeted out this is the greatest advancement toward peace between Israel and the Arab world in the last 26 years. It marks the third formal peace agreement between Israel and an Arab nation. So there's the story that is going to be told by the press, which is that this is all about Israel foregoing annexation. And then there's the real story, which is this is all about an anti-Iranian alliance and a recognition of realities on the ground. And that's the real story. So don't believe the press's lies that this is all about Israel's willingness to make concessions. That is not what happened here. Okay, in the La- We've been told that only if Israel gave up the Golan Heights, gave up East Jerusalem, gave up settlements, and pledged to go back to the Green Line, would there be any sort of surrounding peace in the Middle East and outside in peace where other nations made peace with Israel. Israel annexed the Golan Heights, claimed the Golan Heights, has not given up a single settlement, and has not pledged to do so, by the way, and is never giving up East Jerusalem, and outside nations are, ne- are not making peace with Israel. So it turns out that all of the conventional wisdom is a bunch of crap, and it always was a bunch of crap. We'll get to the enemies of this peace deal, and you can call them enemies of peace because they are literally enemies of a peace deal. We're going to get to that in just one second. First, you hear stories in the news in which a good guy uses a gun to protect his family from criminals, and then he is the one who is arrested. The legal system is not fair. A responsibly armed American may often become a political target. We saw this in St. Louis where there were a couple of homeowners who walked out front to protect their property from people who had broken into a private-gated community, and then the prosecutor tried to prosecute them. It's not right for good, responsible Americans to wind up in jail or embroiled in a lawsuit for defending themselves or their family. In this day and age, you need a gun to protect your family and yourself. Here's how you can take a simple, powerful journey to firearms and self-defense confidence. It's called the Complete Concealed Carry and Family Defense Guide from the United States Concealed Carry Association. It is 100% free. You'll learn how to detect attackers before they see you, how to survive a mass shooting, the safest and most dangerous places to sit in a restaurant, how to responsibly own and store a gun, especially if you have little kids, and a whole lot more. It's 164 pages. It comes with a bonus audio version, so you can listen whenever you want. Just text Ben to 87222 to get this indispensable guide. Text Ben to 87222. You'll get instant access and a chance to win 1000 bucks, so you can buy a gun to protect your family in legal fashion. Text Ben to 87222 right now. Again, text Ben to 87222 and join my friends over at the U.S. Concealed Carry Association right now. Text Ben to 87222. So who opposes the deal? Well, Iran hates the deal. Turkey hates the deal, which is not a shock. Iran is, of course, run by radical Islamic terrorists. Turkey is run by an Islamist, Erdogan, who has transformed what was once a democracy into a thriving hotbed of Islamism. The historic UAE-Israel deal, brokered by the United States, considered a major foreign policy triumph would make UAE the third Arab country behind Egypt and Jordan to establish full diplomatic relations with Israel. But Iran is very, very mad, according to Fox News. Iran's foreign ministry called the agreement a dagger that was unjustly stuck by the UAE in the backs of the Palestinian people and all Muslims. See, if you're going to talk about like daggers stuck in the back of Muslims, you probably have to go with, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people murdered in Syria with the help of the Iranians, or perhaps the complete destruction of Lebanon at the behest of Iranian-backed Hezbollah. Maybe you'd have to go with the complete breakdown in, in Yemen, with the Houthis backed by Iran creating the problem. There, there are lots of things you could talk about when you talk about Muslims being murdered. The UAE making a deal with Israel, that not even, that, that's not even the top 200 problems for Muslims in the Middle East. In fact, it's a solution for a lot of Muslims in the Middle East. Meanwhile, the Turkish foreign ministry claimed the UAE had no right to negotiate the deal on behalf of the Palestinians. They didn't negotiate any deal on behalf of the Palestinians. They negotiated a deal on behalf of the UAE. So the fact that Iran and Turkey hate it means it's a good deal. Inherently, that means it's a good deal. Who else was angry about this? Well, Ben Rhodes, the ridiculous, failed novelist, national security advisor to President Obama, whose claim to Middle Eastern knowledge was predicated on sitting in, a, in an apartment in Brooklyn writing bad fiction while watching a bum piss into a trash can. That guy, he, uh, he had some words. He says, this agreement enshrines what has been the emerging status quo in the region for a long time, including the total exclusion of Palestinians, dressed up as an election eve achievement from two leaders who want Trump to win. So in other words, this is not a triumph. It's not a good thing. This is the exclusion of the Palestinians. It's mean, it's bad. Well, what's weird about that is that Ben Rhodes, while trying to undermine the deal, is so bad that not even Obama's assistant secretary of state for democracy and human rights was buying it. Tom Malinowski, he tweeted out, there's a breakthrough deal for Israel for peace and for U.S. diplomacy. It affirms that Israel has far more to gain from normalization with Arab states than from annexation of the West Bank. A win-win we can build on. Again, recognize that the failure to annex Judea and Samaria, that does not change a single thing on the ground. It changes zero things on the ground. It is a fig leaf. It is a complete political fig leaf so that the UAE can pretend that it got a concession from Israel. And in reality, all that happened was a normalization of relations that the UAE and Israel both wanted in opposition to Iran. Rashida Talib, resident anti-Semite in the American Congress, congresswoman who uh, who prioritizes above all else, the, the support for uh, Palestinian terrorism. She tweeted out, we won't be fooled by another Trump Netanyahu deal. OK, it's not a Trump Netanyahu deal. It's a Netanyahu UAE deal. It's an Israel UAE deal like the UAE doesn't exist in Rashida Talib's universe. We won't celebrate Netanyahu for not stealing land he already controls in exchange for a sweetheart business deal. The heart of the issue has never been planned formal annexation, but ongoing devastating apartheid. Oh, really? Is that what the issue has always been? Not the Palestinian refusal to recognize the existence of the state of Israel, the continued education of children to murder Jews as often as possible. By the way, the same day that Israel made a deal with the UAE, Hamas was floating balloons laden with explosives over the border. That's been their new fun game. Now, you ask yourself, why would they send colorful balloons laden with explosives into Israel? Why would they do that? It can't do that much damage. The answer is, who's attracted to balloons? Guys, who's attracted to balloons? Oh, that's right, small children. Because Hamas is evil. Hamas has always been evil. Palestinian Islamic Jihad is evil. The Iranian government that backs them is evil. The Palestinian government that backs them is evil. But those are the people who are being backed by large swaths of the American political left. In the second, we're going to get to the most ridiculous spin on this thing. The most ridiculous spin on this thing is Joe Biden trying to claim credit for it. So, again, there's this split in sort of democratic circles. Some of them are like, it's a terrible deal. It's a terrible deal. And we hate the deal because Israel actually got something good, which is really what it comes down to. They don't want Israel and the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Jordan to normalize relations because they love Iran and they despise Israel. There's no other way to read that. There's no other way to read that because it is good for the region. It is good for economic normalization. At least Joe Biden is recognizing it's a good thing. But then Joe Biden's like, and I did it. And you have to be absolutely high on your own farts to believe that. You have, I mean, th- that's that's a crazy statement. That is a crazy statement. It's like Bull Connor suggesting that he is responsible for desegregation. Like, nope, pretty certain not. The Obama administration was as anti-Israel pro-Iran as any administration in American history, not as any, far more than any administration in American history. Them claiming the basis for an Israel-UAE deal Is patently crazy. We'll get to that in just one second. First, let us talk about the fact that you need wireless earbuds these days. You're spending an awful lot of time with media. You're you're spending an awful lot of time on the phone. Many of us are working from home. You got to be on the phone a lot. You're listening to your favorite shows. You'll sing your favorite music. But you don't want to spend a fortune on wireless earbuds. Well, what you need are a great pair of wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know that Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market and that they sound just as incredible as other top audio brands you do know. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, those are the best ones yet. Six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and more compact design that gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable, they are perfect for conference calls or binging podcasts. Unlike some of your other wireless options, Raycon earbuds, they're stylish and discreet, no dangling wires, no stems to distract distract anyone during video calls. My favorite thing about my Raycons is that I can customize them to fit my ear. They are not one size fits all. They come with a little metal card, has a variety of fits on it. You can customize them, put them in your ears, they will fit perfectly. Now is the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com. Slash Ben, that's dot com slash Ben, by com slash Ben for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds, com slash Ben. Again, that's com slash Ben for 15% off. Okay, so Joe Biden tried to claim credit for this, which is just patently crazy. It is nuts, man. That is crazy towns. Here is, here's what he said. Today, Israel and the UAE have taken a historic step to bridge the deep divides of the Middle East. The UAE's offer to publicly recognize the state of Israel is a welcome, brave, badly needed act of statesmanship. It is a critical recognition Israel is a vibrant, integral part of the Middle East that is here to stay. Israel can and will be a valued, strategic, and economic partner to all who welcome it. The coming together of Israel and Arab states builds on the efforts of multiple administrations to foster a broader Arab-Israeli opening, including the efforts of the Obama-Biden administration to build on the Arab Peace Initiative. I personally spent time with leaders of both Israel and the UAE during our administration, building the case for cooperation and broader engagement and the benefits it could deliver to both nations. I am gratified by today's announcement. Okay, Joe Biden trying to claim credit for this is, okay, this is, it, it's crazy. Okay, it is fully, fully, fully nuts. My favorite here, one of my favorite things, is him trying to claim that it builds on the efforts of the Obama administration to build on the Arab Peace Initiative. So what the hell is the Arab Peace Initiative? You may recall that the Arab Peace Initiative, if you if you are have familiarity with these issues, was a proposal created by the Saudi Crown Prince Abdullah at the 2002 Arab League Summit in Beirut. It was later endorsed at a 2007 summit in Riyadh. It called for, okay, among other things, full Israeli withdrawal from the Golan Heights, withdrawal from all of Judea and Samaria, withdrawal from East Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount and the Western Wall. Okay, so he's saying that the focus on the Arab peace initiative led to this peace deal. How can you tell that he's totally full of crap, so full of crap that his eyes are turning brown? The way that you can tell that is that Israel did none of those things. Israel has annexed the Golan Heights. Israel has not withdrawn from Judea and Samaria. In fact, it strengthened its presence in Judea and Samaria. And Israel has not withdrawn from East Jerusalem at all and has no intention of doing so. So Joe Biden's like, remember that deal that we pushed that completely failed? That was the basis for this one. No, no, it was not. The real reason. That this deal got cut is because of Obama, but it's because Obama was so radically anti-Israel and pro-Iran that he drove the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Bahrain, Oman into the arms of the Israelis. In 2014, the Obama administration delayed delivery of Hellfire missiles to Israel while Israel was trying to defend itself from the Gaza Strip and terrorism from Hamas. Obama was so anti-Israel that he signed an Iranian peace deal That didn't create peace, that only effectuated their pursuit of a nuclear weapon after 10 years and gave them full ability to normalize their economic relations with the rest of the world and use the money for terrorism. Fully acknowledged, by the way, by Secretary of State John Kerry, Obama was so anti-Israel that as he was leaving office, he planted a time bomb at the United Nations, passing a U.N. Security Council resolution and abstaining. The Security Council resolution declared that all of Judea and Samaria and East Jerusalem were not Jewish territory. And that there was no historic tie. Okay, that's that as a matter of international law, Israel has no claim to the Western Wall, Temple Mount, the entire Jewish quarter of Jerusalem, and that they belong to the Palestinians. That's how anti-Israel Obama was. And so now we're hearing from Biden that he's going to take credit for the deal. The man's a damned liar. He's a damned liar. And the attempt by the media to create several competing myths so they can continue to purvey their overall myth, which is that pressure on Israel creates peace. They have a few myths that they're purveying. One, Obama had anything to do with it. He did not. In fact, it's an unintended consequence of his garbage foreign policy. Two, the pressure on Israel results in peace. That's not what resulted in peace here. There was no pressure on Israel and peace emerged because there was no pressure on Israel. Not in spite of, because there was no pressure on Israel. Three, there's nothing, peace in the Middle East is not reliant in any way on Israel making concessions to the Palestinians in any way. And finally, that Democrats and the foreign policy establishment, foreign policy establishment know what in the hell they're talking about. They absolutely do not. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien said that Trump should be up for a Nobel Peace Prize. Okay, that is true. He should be. Okay, if Obama had cut the steel, he would be. Here is Robert O'Brien.
0: It's really remarkable, I think, when you when you step back and take a look at what this president has done on the peace front. uh, And and it wouldn't surprise me. It'll take some time in this environment, but it wouldn't surprise me uh, if the president's eventually nominated for a Nobel Prize for the the, this. Today's work is an example uh, of why he would be. Uh, rightly considered and, and should be a front runner for the Nobel Peace Prize.
1: Okay, people are laughing at that. He's done more for peace in the Middle East than anything Obama did. Obama was a horrible president for the Middle East. He set the Middle East on fire. Okay, how many regime changes happened while Barack Obama was president that resulted in more dictatorship, not less? How much violence broke out in the Middle East while Obama was president? Okay, that guy won the Nobel Peace Prize for existing. Trump, they all laugh at him. His Middle Eastern policy has been more successful than any president of my lifetime. It is not particularly close, by the way. Okay, meanwhile, all of this is the basis for a solid Trump campaign. Here, this is always the gap for President Trump. His achievements in many areas are quite good. The economy was stellar up until COVID hit. President Trump has appointed a lot of great conservative judges and some who are not so great to the Supreme Court. The the president of the United States has has cut some regulations. He cut taxes, which is a good thing. On On foreign policy, he's been significantly better than any of his predecessors in the Middle East, and it's not close. He's been harsher on China than any of his predecessors, and it's not particularly close. All of that is good stuff. So why isn't he doing better in the polls? Well, there's a poll out today and it shows exactly why and what he needs to do to come back in this election. Plus, we'll get to... Joe Biden and his central pitch, which is COVID. It's always going to be COVID. We're going to get to that in just one second. First, let us talk about a great watch that you can get without breaking the bank. I'm talking about Vincero. Check out this watch. This is a really, really nice looking watch. I'm a huge fan of luxury watches, but luxury watches will cost you thousands and thousands of dollars. How about something that looks like a luxury watch and ain't going to cost you like a luxury watch? I'm talking about this Vincero. Vincero is giving you a big sale alert. You already know how I feel about Vincero watches. These are great watches. They're stunning. They are priced well under $200. These timepieces really do stand out. Vincero Watches, they're dedicated to the craft. They put the time and effort into cre- creating timepieces so you can wear them day after day. Right now, Vincero is running a site-wide sale to celebrate their sixth anniversary. Up to 30% off site-wide. No code required. Your discount will be automatically applied at checkout when you visit vincerowatches.com Shapiro. Everything on site is on sale. No exclusions, including all four of their all-new collections, all of those are available. They're shipping all orders directly from local U.S. distributors. They're delivering all orders on time, no delays. They want to get your product to you as quickly as possible. With Vincero, no brand name markup, no big-time price tags. Their promise is simple, solid, well-made products you will enjoy wearing. I enjoy wearing Vincero. Vincero offers free shipping, 30-day returns, guarantees your watch for two years. So it's not going to fall apart on you. Go to V-I-N-C-E-R-O watches.com forward slash Shapiro. That is is forward slash Shapiro. For that special deal, again, 30% off. Do not pay full price on these amazing timepieces. Take advantage of the opportunity. Vincerowatches.com forward slash Shapiro. Alrighty, It is that glorious time of the week when I give a shout out to a Daily Wire subscriber. Today it is William Sindelar on Instagram who knows that parents must lead by example in the picture. William is taking a big swig out of the world's most elite beverage vessel while his young daughter looks on adoringly. The caption reads, breakfast of champions. Hashtag leftist tears Tumblr. Hashtag real Daily Wire. Hashtag proud daughter. Indeed. Leftist tea, leftist tears are indeed the most nutritious part of the food pyramid. Thanks for the picture and thanks for being a Daily Wire member. You are listening to the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. Okay, so President Trump has actually done very, very many good things as president of the United States. So why isn't he more popular? The answer is perfectly obvious. People don't like him personally. That is a perfectly obvious answer. It's a perfectly obvious truth, which means that if he can just cut it out and we all know what it is, then he'll have a good shot at winning. Okay, the reason that I say this is the case, that nobody is voting for Biden based on policy. Nobody is voting for Biden because they like his agenda. Nobody's even voting for Biden because they like Biden. They're just voting for Biden because they don't like Trump. The Pew Research Center poll. Okay, here are the top reasons for supporting Donald Trump. 23% say leadership performance. 21% say his issue or policy positions. 19% say he is not Biden. 17% he's for Americans. 16% vote for Republicans and against Democrats. 11%, he tells it like it is his personality. So only 11% of people voting for Trump are doing it because they like his personality. Okay, by contrast, Joe Biden, 56%, 56% of people who are voting for Joe Biden say they are voting for Joe Biden because, quote, he is not Trump. That's literally the only reason people are voting for Biden. There is not another statistic that breaks 20%. Leadership or performance, only 19% say leadership or performance. His personality and temperament, only 13% say that. Only 9% of Joe Biden voters say they are voting for him because of his his issue and policy positions. And only 7% say they're doing so because they're Democrats and voting against Republicans. So in other words, this entire election has been a referendum on Donald Trump's personality. And that continues to be the main factor militating against a President Trump victory, which is something that President Trump should take under advisement because that's something he can correct for. Stay on the teleprompter. Stay on the teleprompter. Okay, because on the issues... The American people do not like the Biden-Harris ticket. They don't. And now yesterday, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris held a press conference at which they answered zero questions. That was exciting. So they're just gonna continue to maintain because they understand that the media are not here to report. The media are here simply to drool over them and to rip into President Trump. So they have a massive advantage, which is they will never have to answer questions and Joe Biden can be wheeled on a gurney all the way into the Oval Office. With that said, I am absolutely amazed at the lack of follow-up questioning from the media on broad based policies proposed by Biden and Harris. So yesterday they did this presser that wasn't a presser because they answered no questions in which Biden and Harris sat six feet apart awkwardly and talked to experts on COVID and uh, and then recommended silly things. So here was Joe Biden yesterday calling for a national mask mandate for the next three months. As I'm about to talk about, this makes uh, zero sense at all for a couple of reasons.
0: Every governor should mandate. Every governor should mandate mandatory mask wearing. The estimates by the experts are it will save over 40,000 lives in the next three months. 40,000 lives. The people act responsibly. And uh, it's not about your rights. It's about your responsibilities as an American.
1: Okay, so he's saying we need a national mask mandate. Okay, so a couple of things. One, he doesn't mean a national mask mandate. There's no constitutional power for the federal government to actually enact a a federal mask mandate. It doesn't exist, right? And also, I'm amused by folks on the left who keep saying the national government should institute a mask mandate. Okay, who are you going to have enforce it, guys? What's your plan? You're going to send federal troops into the cities? So I guess the left agenda on this is federal troops into the cities, not to protect federal property that's being burned by Antifa in Portland, Federal troops in the cities to yell at you if you're not wearing a mask while jogging. Okay, But that's not even really what Biden is saying. He's saying, I think all governors should institute mask mandates." Oh, well, I'm glad for your opinion, Joe. Thank you for your useless, garbage, empty opinion that means nothing. I'm glad that you think things. Wow. So you mean as president, you're going to tell governors to do a thing that they can completely ignore? Slow clap. Wow. You solved COVID, dude. Well, well done. Kamala Harris like this is going to save lives. This is going to save lives. OK, Kamala, sure.
0: We just witnessed real leadership, which is Joe Biden said that as a nation, we should all be wearing a mask for the next three months because it will save lives. And the thing about Joe that the American people know is that his role of leadership in our country has always been about doing what's best for the people of our country.
1: Except when he was trying to ban her from going to an integrated public school, guys. He was uh, Joe's leadership has always been great, except when he was sexually harassing the help and or stopping me from going to an integrated public school, says Kamala Harris, the most cynical politician uh, of the modern day. I I love that. That was real leadership from Joe Biden. Did you know that? He said there and said mask. He said the word mask. That's leadership. We're done here. I mean, come on. We have solved COVID, guys. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. By the way, most Americans in hotspots are wearing masks. They're wearing masks without a mask mandate because most Americans are taking seriously COVID in areas where COVID is spiking. Then Biden and Harris refused to take questions, which is really exciting stuff. Because remember, Donald Trump has never had to answer a hard question, but these people are willing to answer all the hard questions except when they're running directly off stage so Joe Biden can go get an an oxygen tank. Here Here is Kamala Harris yesterday. I'm honored to be with you, Joe. Thank you. President Biden, what role do you see for
0: Senator
1: Harris in the So, President Trump, by the way, on masks, much more coherent than either Kamala Harris or Joe Biden, because he actually apparently understands the role of the federal government. He said, "You should wear a mask, but we are not state governments, and it is not the job of the federal government to force people to wear masks." Accurate. It's called federalism. It's in the Constitution. Here's President Trump.
0: He wants the president of the United States with the mere stroke of a pen to order over 300 million American citizens to wear a mask for a minimum of three straight months. He does not identify what authority the president has to issue such a mandate or how federal law enforcement could possibly enforce it or why we would be stepping on governors throughout our country, many of whom have done a very good job and they know what is needed.
1: By the way, correct. By the way, California has mask mandates all over the place. California just became the first state with over 600,000 diagnosed cases of COVID. They have a higher death count than, California, than, than Texas or Florida. And the curve has not yet begun to bend, really, in California. OK, so here's the thing. Again, when it comes to policy, President Trump is not wrong on a lot of this stuff. Okay, I'm not saying that he's perfect because no president is perfect. Uh, There are a lot of things I disagree with, including his spending policies. But the real problem for Trump is not his policies. The real problem for Trump is his running mouth. That continues to be the real problem for President Trump. I'll give you a couple of examples. Okay, so yesterday, during a press conference, President Trump was asked about this column from John Eastman, who's a law professor uh, over at Claremont Institute. He's written a lot. Um, and, uh, and he, he wrote a column basically suggesting that maybe Kamala Harris was not eligible for the presidency. That's because his interpretation of the 14th amendment is that in order to become a citizen, you have to have been, you have to have been naturalized. In other words, he doesn't believe in the, in the idea that if you're born in the United States, you are a natural born citizen. And so he asks whether Kamala Harris's parents ever became naturalized citizens. There are questions about that. Therefore, the fact that she was born in the United States does not nat- naturally make her a citizen. That's his legal theory. It's not accepted by virtually anybody. Virtually everybody understands that Kamala Harris is a natural-born citizen of the United States. She was literally born here. Her parents apparently were naturalized, as best we know. And so there's not a lot of credence to that. President Trump throwing out this theory is completely useless and counterproductive. Because again, the case against Kamala Harris is not her ineligibility. The case against Kamala Harris is that she's awful. She's awful. So why does the president constantly stick his hand in beehives? Yesterday was a day where he cut a historic Middle East peace deal, the biggest Middle East peace deal in 30 years, and a day when the Democrats decided to go full-on top-down control on masks. And here he was talking about Kamala Harris's eligibility for the vice presidency. Come on, come on. This is useless.
0: I heard it today that she doesn't meet the requirements. Uh, And by the way, the lawyer that wrote that piece is a very highly qualified, very talented lawyer. I have no idea if that's right. I would have th- I would have assumed the Democrats would have checked that out before she gets chosen to run for vice president. But that's a very serious you're saying that they're saying that she doesn't qualify because she wasn't born in this country.
1: OK, so, you know, that's that. Come on. Come on. How How is that useful in any way? Speaking of things that are not useful in any way, yesterday, President Trump was talking about defunding the post office. So there's been a lot of talk about whether to pour more money down the rat hole that is the post office. The post office is awfully run. It has been awfully run for years because the post office's mandate is to ensure that if you're in a far flung area, you get charged the same postage as if you are in like a major American city. They run at a loss. The post office has run at a loss for years, which is why FedEx continues to be more reliable. And if you really want to make sure the mail gets there on time, you don't use the post office at all. Right. So the the case that Republicans have been making about the post office is. Why are we, why are we spending more money on the post office when less mail is now being sent than ever before in American history? Why are we doing that? That makes no sense at all, right? That was the Republican case that the Democrats were trying to pour more money into the post office because the giant government boondoggle. So why are we pouring more billions of money, more billions of dollars into the post office? President Trump then goes on national TV and he says, the reason we should defund the post office is that the post office does not have the wherewithal to handle mail and voting. Why? Why, God, Why? Why? Why, why? <clears throat> why,, why, why, why? Again, the point of not funding the post office is that it is a bad service and've got to fix it first. It is not anything to do with mail-in voting. Okay, the problem with mail-in voting is that the U.S. Postal Service, is not going to be able to get the mail there on time. That universal mail-in voting, people keep saying absentee ballots are the same as mail-in voting. They're not the same as universal mail-in voting. Universal mail-in voting is they send a ballot directly to your house before you even ask for one. They do so on a universal level. It doesn't matter if you've already moved. You might be receiving three, four ballots at your house. Right? It opens the door wide to people committing fraud. It does. Okay, and just because not a lot of people have taken advantage of that doesn't mean that you should loosen the laws or that you should make it easier. That That is the, the point on universal mail-in voting. Absentee ballots you request because you can't make it to the polling station, for example. Democrats are pushing universal mail-in voting this year on the back of the pandemic. But the suspicion is the real reason they are doing that is because they wish to have universal mail-in voting and ballot harvesting so they can deploy Democratic operatives to go house to house and pick up ballots on behalf of Democrats, which is exactly what they did in Orange County, California during the 2018 election and shifted four red seats blue. Okay, so... That is the objection to universal mail-in voting. That is not an objection to funding the Postal Service so people can't actually send in anything, including absentee ballots. Here was Trump shooting himself directly in the foot yesterday.
0: They want $3.5 uh, billion dollars for the mail-in votes. Okay, universal mail-in ballots. Three and a half trillion. They want $25 billion billion for the post office. Now, they need that money in order to have the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots now, in the meantime, they aren't getting there. By the way, those are just two items. But if they don't get those two items, that means you can't have universal mail-in voting because they're not equipped to have it.
1: OK, so now he's saying that he's going to deprive the post office of resources so that mail-in voting won't work. That like why? Why? That just opens the door to Joe Biden saying that Trump's trying to undermine electoral integ- integrity, which is exactly what Biden stumbles over himself. but says here is Joe Biden yesterday.
0: President
1: Trump, thank you today, guys. My guys, this for the postal service tying to mailers voting. What do you think about that? Pure Trump. Okay, guys, let's go. Let's go. Fun. He doesn't want an election. He doesn't want an election, is what Joe Biden says. That's the that's the idea. Is that so? Again, if President Trump wants to win the election, he's going to need to get out of his own way. Now, obviously, the media aren't going to help here. Right? The media are are being fated as heroes for massaging the massaging the shoulders of the Biden. Harris campaign while simultaneously just trying to make a name for themselves yelling at Trump. Yesterday, a Huffington Post reporter got up at a press conference and just started haranguing Trump, which, of course, is not asking a question. It's just him being a jerk. But don't worry, he'll get a Jim Acosta book contract next.
0: Mr. President, after three and a half years, you regretted all, all the lying you've done to the American people. All the what?
1: Day. All the lying, all the dishonesties. That who has done? You have done. Uh, tens of yeah, thousands. go ahead, Please. And then he just ignored him. Okay, but the media were like, wow, look at the heroism. So much heroing! Oh, heroing!" The media are garbage. Trump needs to understand the media are garbage. He needs to not give them any sort of ammo. Deprive the enemy of ammunition is one of the electoral strategies Trump must pursue if he wishes to win. Okay, now, I want to make a quick com- comment on a story that is finally getting some national attention. So there's a story that got no national attention for like a week. And uh, my compatriot here at Daily Wire, Matt Walsh, really pushed it into the mainstream. It's a story of a 25-year-old man, a black man, who shot a five-year-old boy last week in Wilson, North Carolina. He's now been charged with first-degree murder. Austin Hinnant told CNN affiliate WRAL he was inside the home when his son Cannon was playing outside and was shot. Hinnant says he ran outside and scooped up the injured child and held him in his arms. I screamed, somebody help me, please help me save my son. Hinnant told the affiliate he looked up and saw his neighbor, Darius Sessoms, in the yard next door with a gun in his hand, pacing and frantic. I was looking at him as I was picking up Cannon. I was so full of rage, but I couldn't leave my son's side. I just wanted to be with my son. Hinnan's fiance called 911. Sessoms then drove away. Police identified him as a suspect, arrested him after he was found Monday in a Goldsboro residence about 30 minutes south. Okay, so the motive is not yet clear. The point that Matt Walsh was making is that if the races were reversed, there is no question it would be a national story. Now, do I actually think that this should be a national story? I actually don't think it should be a national story. I think it's a local crime story. I think it's horrific. I think it's an act of tremendous evil. The only reason that it should in any way be a national story is because the media have a double standard on what constitutes a national story. And this is worthy of comment. Okay, the Ahmed Arbery story should not be a national story. It is a local crime story. What it becomes a national story, all stories are initially local. What becomes a national story is one of two things, either a story that affects the entire nation or a story that is indicative of a broader trend plaguing the entire nation. There's not a broad trend in the United States of white people hunting down black people, which is why the Ahmed Arbery story should not be a national story. It is is an oddity and a local crime story and a horrific, horrific story. It should not be a national crime story. Neither should Michael Brown. Neither really should George Floyd, because there is not a great spate of white cops murdering black black people. It's just not happening. None of those should be national stories. They should all be local crime stories. The same thing holds true here. There is not a spate of black people killing five-year-old white children. So that really should not be a national news story either. The only reason That it should be treated as a national news story is simply as a slap in the face to a media that have decided that certain narratives are worthy of promulgation and other narratives are not. And so if the media wants to pretend that any horrific crime story is now a national news story, then they do need to cover the canon hidden story. And if they want to claim that interracial crime is a national news story, then they need to cover it in a statistically representative way and a statistically representative way on a on a population adjusted level. More white people are killed by black people in the United States than black people are killed by white people in the United States. Now, the reason that's not a national news story either way is because the vast majority of white people, like vast, vast, like 90 percent, 95, like a huge percentage of white people who are killed are killed by other white people. The same thing is true for black people killing other black people. So if you actually wanted stories that are representative of broad national trends, what well, you would focus on are five year olds being shot in the inner city in gang warfare. That's more indicative of a national trend that requires national attention. Right. That would be something worthy of national coverage or a white person killing another white person in an opioid addicted town. Right. That would be more indicative of a national news story. But our national news coverage is skewed toward particular narratives. That's the point that Matt Walsh is making. So do I actually think that this canon hidden story is deserving of, quote unquote, national attention? Probably not. It's a local news story. It's deserving of attention just because it's a human tragedy. But that's not really why people want it to be covered. And exacerbating racial tensions by claiming that certain stories are indicative of trends that do not exist on either side is a mistake. Okay, so later today, we have two additional hours of commentary and content. I still have a lot to get to, including, by the way, the fact that HBO Max is now putting a disclaimer on Blazing Saddles. They're putting a disclaimer on Blazing Saddles, an intro, to ensure that the film is put into proper social context. The proper social context, by the way, is that people didn't used to be jackwagons who wouldn't laugh at jokes. That's the proper social context, is that you yourself, if you need a proper social context for Blazing Saddles, it's because you're an uptight prude. Okay, and this is coming from a guy who just got excoriated for reading lyrics on the air. Hey, okay, get over yourselves. Okay, we'll see you here a little bit later today. Otherwise, we'll see you here on Monday. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is the Ben Shapiro show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Andrew Clavin Show, The Michael Moles Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Colton Haas, Executive Producer Jeremy Boring, Supervising Producer Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling, Assistant Director Pavel Wydowski, Technical Producer Austin Stevens, Playback and Media Operated by Nick Sheehan, Associate Producer Katie Swinnerton, Edited by Adam Saievitz, Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Nika Geneva. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020.
0: You know, the Matt Wall Show, it's not just another show about about politics. I think there are enough of those already out there. We talk about culture because culture drives politics and it drives everything else. So my main focuses are life, family, faith. Those are fundamental. And that's what this show is about. I hope you'll give it a listen.